may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. If you are uh, new to the Bible, um, maybe just checking us out and wanting to hear a little bit more about Jesus, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. We are... um, we're working our way through the book of Revelation. And if you are visiting with us or have been visiting with us and want uh, either to contact us or leave your information so you can get on our email newsletter, in the back of your worship guys, there's a form. Just fill that out and drop it in one of the offering plates over here. Um, and we will, um, we will put you on our email uh, newsletter list. Uh, most of our information goes out uh, via email. Um, And so you may be missing out on some things. Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 1. This is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, where a place had been prepared by God, which she was to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time 
and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is God's word. We should ask his blessing on it. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, it is with great hope and anticipation from where When you speak, you speak with great power, and things change. Hearts either become hardened, or new life begins to grow in the deadness that we have brought here today. So this is our our ask, because you never leave things unchanged when you speak. We pray that you would change us so that we might see Jesus more clearly as the one who is the answer to all our needs, the one who meets us where we are, the one who has given himself for our sins and now has all power and authority in heaven and earth. And so we pray this by your spirit and in his name. Amen. I I often think... um, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, that um, one of these Sundays, I'm just going to encourage you to listen with your eyes closed because so much of this is visual. And that is on purpose. John is, is giving us a sense that there is more going on in the world than we realize in any situation. And that's just part of what it means to be the created thing, that we, we generally don't have a full and complete view of any situation or even any person. If you've been married for a while, you've, you've experienced this. Spouses who've known each other for decades will all of a sudden discover something new about their spouse. And they're like, I, I didn't really know that about them. Or how many times have you thought you really knew a situation? You had a clear grasp on the situation, then out of the blue comes a new piece of information that, that causes you to reinterpret everything that you once thought so clearly was the case. Well, that is the, that's the intention of what God is doing in the book of Revelation. Revelation means unveiling. God's pulling off the veil and showing us a perspective, a new perspective that we can't naturally see with our own eyes. And it's to give the people of Jesus a new lens to interpret our experience in a new light. But many of you have been taught that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to look at the text of this book forward to future events. But what I've been suggesting is that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to not look forward from John's writing of this book, but to look backwards to reinterpret the history of the Bible. This is the last book of the Bible. John isn't giving us so much a commentary on current events as he is giving us a commentary on biblical history that reaches its climax in the person and work of Jesus. This is the last book of the Bible, and as such, it is rich in biblical allusions along the way. And what John is telling us here in Revelation 12 
is that the redemptive history of the Bible is the most true accounting of the history of this world. And that, it comes to its climax in the person and work of Jesus. See, what John is doing in Revelation 12 is he's giving us a satellite view of redemptive history. John's pulling back. He's, he's reached onto the screen and he's pinched and zoomed out so that we might see that the conflict that started in Genesis chapter 3 between God and Satan has come to its climax in Jesus The serpent who deceived the first woman and the first man in an attempt to undermine God's rulers, in an attempt to destroy God's kingdom. That's the story we read in Genesis 3. But God, those are the great words on which the hope of the whole world is built. But God would not let the evil one destroy his kingdom. So he promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that these two would continue to battle it out through history until the serpent is destroyed by the seed of the woman. And you see, this is what we often fail to see, that the history of the world the history of ideas, the history of the rise and fall of nations, the history of history is built on this plot structure. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one in conflict with one another, but God. And so what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that there is a greater conflict that is going on than anything that you are currently worried about. And so verse 1, John's vision begins with another sign. This is repeatedly what happens. John has signs that he sees. And another sign appears in heaven. And he looks up and he sees a woman. And she is glorious. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown on her head with 12 stars. It's an image of the people of God. This is, all of these are allusions to things that God had said about his people throughout the Old Testament. This is the way God sees his people. First Israel and now the church. He doesn't see them as a broken and filthy people, but a glorious and beautiful person. A woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and crowns on her head. And then verse 2, the people of God, clothed in all her glory, is giving birth. She's pregnant, and she's crying out in the agony of of giving birth. And then we see in verse 5, that she gives birth to Jesus. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. From the glorious and beloved people of God, the God that he had called to himself and clothed with his his own grace, comes forth the seed that he had promised. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 
But John sees another sign. A red dragon in verse 3. And you see what's happened is the, the serpent of Genesis 3 has grown up over time and become a fierce dragon. And he is quite vicious and quite strong. He has seven heads and ten horns. And you see in the, in, in the book of Revelation, num- numbers are significant. They symbolize things. And the, and the number of strength, is, the number of completeness is the number seven. It's not so much the number of perfection or that it's that things have grown to their intended end. And the evil one has grown full and strong. He had become a fierce and dangerous seven-headed monster. Children, I, want to, I really want you to get this picture in your head and, and you may, just to warn your parents, you may have nightmares tonight after picturing this, but that's part of John's intention. Horns are a symbol of strength. The, the serpent has grown into a, a dragon and, and he has horns on his head, much like today where a hunter might mount a, if he got a trophy deer or a trophy elk with a, with a large structure on its head, he'd mount it because the eye have taken down a great, strong, impressive beast. And this dragon has ten horns. He has a horn on each of his heads, but on three of his heads he has two horns. And on all those heads are seven crowns. Because he is the ruler of this world and is shaping more of the events around us than we realize. And with his tail being so strong, he is able to swipe down a third of the stars. And he's a red dragon, like the color of blood. Because his intent is to murder and destroy. Jesus said of the evil one, he was a murderer from the beginning. Now, if you're not going to have nightmares about that, then you will probably about this next part of the vision because it is intentionally quite grotesque. It's vividly vile. John is wanting us to see, or God through John is wanting us to see how evil the evil one really is. If you think the Bible is this placid, clean, inspirational book. It's probably because you haven't read much of it. it it's less, the Bible is less like the countryside or the suburbs and, and more like the worst neighborhoods of the inner city in what it describes. It's, and in this sense, it is lifelike. It's full of dark and grotesque images because God is speaking to real people who are going through really hard times in this world and whose problems are real and who are really broken and living in a really broken world. And so hang on, verse 4. The dragon, again, picture it, seven heads, ten horns, crowns on each of the head, so large that its tail can swipe down a third of the stars, stands before the woman as she is about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There the woman is. She's in the agony of of giving birth. Is there anything more vulnerable than a woman in the midst of giving? All of her attention is focused on bearing her child into the world. 
She can not defend herself. She can do nothing to protect herself. All of her strength is focused on one thing, bringing that child into the world. She is incredibly vulnerable at that moment. And the dragon stood before the woman. That's the language of close proximity. Almost between her legs is the blood red, murderous dragon quivering within anticipation as his seven mouths drool with delight to devour the Messiah as soon as it leaves the woman's body. This is how evil the evil one is. He is a murderer from the beginning and he hates God and he's drooling with delight to devour the seed of the woman who would rule the nations and establish God's kingdom once and for all. It is a vivid scene. But now look at verse 5 because it's quite anticlimactic. She gives birth to a child, the one who will rule the nation, and her child is caught up to God and to his throne. The dragon's no match. But God. The battle that had been brewing all of this time, that had been coming to its climax when the dragon is ready to devour the seed of the woman and take once and for all his rule over the world with all of his evil intent, is left completely dissatisfied because the battle between the dragon and God is not even close to being a battle between equals. Where God reigns and in his goodness defeats the evil one. Now, this is a satellite view. On the ground, this battle looked like this. Jesus was born into a family. He was obeyed God. He performed his ministry of service and suffering, was crucified, bearing the sins of God's people. He stayed in the grave for a couple of days, was raised from the dead, continued to minister to his disciple for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven, where he now rules with all power and authority but john is pinched out and zoomed so what do you see it's a little child's born it's taken up into heaven and in that blip is the hinge of all of history for the coming of jesus into the world to bear the sins of god's people and then to take his throne is the hinge on which all of history rests. The cross changes everything. And now that God, through Jesus, has defeated the dragon, things change. For the dragon loses his authority, his place, and he's thrown out of heaven. Verse 10. Starting in verse 7, Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. The dragons and his angels fight back. They're defeated. He's thrown down to the earth. And in verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, again, this is not, this is shouting. It's a loud proclamation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. It's a victory song. The child has won. But now that Jesus has defeated the dragon, the dragon is not yet destroyed. And you see, that's the tension of living on this side of the cross. Satan has been defeated, but not yet been destroyed. And so he continues to rage against the woman. Precisely because God has defeated him. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. Jesus won the decisive battle. He has defeated the evil one. He has thrown him down, but he is not yet destroyed. And he is now angry. His rage has increased. I've probably overused this illustration. But in World War II, the Allies had clearly won the war by June of 1944. The Axis powers in North Africa and Italy had largely been defeated by the end of 1943, been dismantled. And so when the Allies took the beaches of Normandy in June 1944, the war was over. Everyone knew it. No one doubted it. But Hitler wouldn't give up. He was a defeated foe, but he had not yet been destroyed. And so that just made him angrier. He would not go down. He would continue to fight. And he was going to take as many with him as he could. And that happens again in verse 17. He's thrown down. He now knows his time is short. He's going to fight to the end and take as many with them. And then after 17, after another one of God's deliverances, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Every time God wins, he only gets angrier and sets out to further take to battle God's people, but God. See, when we left the woman in verse 6, after giving birth, she went into the wilderness to be nourished for 1,260 days. That number is going to come up a number of times in a number of different ways. It's roughly three and a half years Three and a half years was about the time of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. That's roughly three and a half years. Sometimes it's referred to in the book of Revelation as time, times, and a half a time, three and a half years. Sometimes it's referred to as 42 months, three and a half years. But it is always a time of travail and difficulty, of wilderness wandering because to be a follower of jesus to be the people of god means that we follow the path of jesus first the cross then the crown the wilderness always comes before the promised land and too much of our disappointment in life and with god is that we have our minds to think that we get to skip the wilderness this is god's intention send his people out into the wilderness but notice the way the wilderness is talked about is a place prepared by God. Verse 6. 
prepared. That's the language of, of housing and home, of presence and familiarity. God is with his people in the wilderness. That's the state of the church today. We are in our wilderness wanderings, waiting for Jesus to come back and take us to the home that he has gone to prepare for us with the Father. And tell them God has prepared a place for his people in the wilderness. But the wilderness is often and is always the place where God is there to nourish and protect his people. Very seldom does anybody grow in times of ease. The nourishment comes in the wilderness. The victories of God are seen in the wilderness. And so God is with his people in the place prepared for them in the wilderness for three and a half years, for a fixed period of time, for a time until when it comes to an end, we will ascend first the cross and then the crown. And you see what happens also in the wilderness is the dragon knows he cannot defeat God, but he still hates him and his rage is increased. And so the dragon in the wilderness was also with God's people. But God is with there to protect them. And again, he's a red dragon, a murderer from the beginning. And he knows he still has seven heads and ten horns. And so he cannot defeat the child who is now exalted and ruling over the nations. He's not going to go down without a fight. And he's not going to go down without trying to take more of God's people with him he knows he can't defeat god but in his rage he will still try to take out as many of god's people made in his image adopted into his family beloved by the father he will still rage against the woman in the wilderness and john's going to say he's going to use two tactics against you and these are tip so typical we're going to see this in the next few chapters Children, don't think that the dragon, when he tries to come against you, is going to show up like a dragon. He likes to hide his dragon parts. So he's going to show up like an impersonator. See, impersonators look almost like a celebrity. They can talk like the celebrity and dress like a celebrity, but they aren't that famous person that they are impersonating. And so the two tactics that the evil one uses here in Revelation 12 are deceit and accusation. And both of these tactics, what he's trying to do, what the dragon is trying to do to destroy God's people is get their focus off of the gospel. He knows as long as the church of God is centered on the gospel of Jesus, she can stand against any of his tactics. But the moment he can shift our focus away to something else, anything else, he does not care what it is, then he knows he can devour us. And so first, deceit, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. This is back to the tactic of deception because a river so often throughout the Bible is an image of God's presence and so it becomes a metaphor 
for God's word. So the river of words that are flowing out, gushing out of the dragon's mouth is described like a flood. It is a flood of lies. And his lies aren't flat-out lies most of the time. They're half-truths masquerading as whole truths. He likes to twist things just a little bit in his deception. And it is a flood. We don't fight a one-dimensional war. It is a flood of lies that are constantly coming after God's people to sweep us away. You can just as easily get swept away by conspiracy theories as you can by the politics of the left. You can just as easily get swept away by the lies of progressive Christianity as you can by fundamentalism. You can just as easily get swept away by denying gender as a, as a fixed thing as you can get swept away by socially constructed gender stereotypes that the world places on that God has not placed on his people. The flood of lies. The dragon deceives here and there with the flood. And if you think on your own, you can determine what the lies are. You are, as the flood comes at you, you're like a fool who thinks he can drive a Toyota Yaris through the raging Mississippi River and get out on the other side. The dragon is, though, not equal in his lies with God who is there in the wilderness to protect his people. Verse 16. Again, it's very anticlimactic. This is vision of the dragon with a flood coming out, ready to take out God's people, who are generally helpless and hopeless. And then verse 16. The earth came to the help of the woman and opened its mouth, swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Like that. No match. And you see, verse 11, that the one of the ways that God's people conquer the dragon is by the word of their testimony. This isn't so much their testimony as we usually think about it. You might, if you grew up in the church, you might be thinking, my testimony is my talk about my conversion experience. And most of you are saying, well, I don't have much of a testimony because it's not all that exciting. It's not all that radical. I was just going about life, and Jesus convinced me that I needed him, and then that was enough. That's sort of my testimony. That is a radical testimony of God's power. No one gets there on their own. But that's not what John means here. The word of his testimony is really meaning the work of evangelism, of telling others about the saving grace of Jesus. We conquer, not just by believing the gospel, but by spreading the gospel into the world. For when people come to faith in Christ, Paul tells us that, that we're plundering Satan's kingdom. So we conquer him. The deception with the truth of the gospel. His second tactic is accusation. And again, in both of these tactics, he's just trying to get our focus off of the gospel. His second tactic is accusation. In verse 9, the dragon is thrown out of heaven. And then he is identified. This dragon, we don't find out his identity until now. This dragon, in verse 9, is the devil, which means the accuser. This is often how we see him operating throughout the Bible. That's his role. 
He stands in God's courtroom and brings accusation against God's people. Again, he's using his mouth. And he's saying, look at what he's done. Look at what she didn't do today. And she did it again and again and again. And she promised she would never do it again. And she did. She is not faithful. He is worthless. They are of no good. They have not done what you have asked them to do. And the accusations come again like a flood. And in such a subtle way, what he accomplishes when we hear those accusations loudly in our ears. He gets our attention off the saving, transforming grace of Jesus back onto our works. Because as he yells the accusations in one ear and he bellows those out, he then whispers in the other ear. Now you have to work to cover your failures yourself. Or the other lie that he whispers is, you can't, you can't cover yourself, so just give up. You're a worthless failure. There's no hope for you. And you see what happens when Jesus died. And he's taken up to heaven. He now stands in the courtroom of God as the new advocate of God's people. The accuser is cast down because he has no right to accuse any more those who are in Christ. For the declaration that now rings loudly from God's throne is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 10. And then I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. He still accuses, but this prosecutor has been disbarred and thrown out of God's courtroom because he has no basis for his accusations anymore. So, verse 11. How do they conquer? By the blood of the Lamb. Not by... Well, I'm going to get my life together. God, I, I won't do this anymore if you'll just come help me out of this situation. The shame that floods from the accusations of the evil one is answered this way. Not here, but there. The blood of the Lamb has been shed for my sins. You tried to devour him. It's as simple as saying to the accusing dragon, sure, those things are true. That's, there's a lot more that you haven't even started with. Those things are true of me, but they are not what is most true about me, for I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. You could not devour the little child. But he was devoured by the wrath of God for my sin. And I'm not red like you anymore. But I've been clothed in the white robes of Jesus. And so we sing, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. 
His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Lord, there is no hope for us against the rage of the evil one except this Jesus and that is all that we need may we stand on his gospel fight to keep it central build all of our hope on his finished work and listen no more to the dragon's flood of lies and accusations. For you have spoken to us in your word. And in your word, you have spoken to us that Jesus is enough. And so as we come to your table, remind us of this truth again as we feed on the lamb slain for our sins. Take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and use them to the extraordinary end of causing us to be satisfied with Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen.